0: Session with Dr. Fadid Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Relock, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: 310 441 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk on next Monday's show about is An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. As is obviously the case, uh, there's so much uh, we don't know, and I recognize that although I've familiarized myself with American history in relation to the treatment of Indigenous people of America, but I have so much to learn and so recently came across this book and uh, wanted to read it to educate myself some more. And look forward to reading it and sharing it with you next week on Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is give me just one moment The Mind and the Moon by da- Daniel Bergner. The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. And this book was um, part story and part history. And so um, he shares his brother's story, Bob, who deals with bipolar disorder, which might include psychosis, uh, or does it include psychosis, but also follows um, Caroline, who also has hallucinations from psychosis, and David, who has a severe depression, and follows their histories and what they go through, the, the differences and experiences that they have, but then also their interactions with the mental health uh, f- f- uh, mental health practitioners, the mental health system, and essentially how they are very strongly pushed and almost forced to take medications in some cases and then deal with those consequences and what they go through as a result. And so also in, in tracing their stories, it also um, follows the history of the biological model of mental illnesses, specifically when we think of things like chemical imbalances. And that phrase has been used so much for decades um, that it's still very much part of our common parlance, common conversation. We say that, oh, someone has a chemical imbalance. That's why they are depressed or they have schizophrenia or whatever it might be, even though precisely what that means or understanding if that's actually the case, there's not a lot of evidence for that, and recently, and I talked about this last week, there was a, uh, some studies, a meta-analysis that found that there doesn't appear to be this relationship between low serotonin and depression, as has often been the case, or that serotonin levels don't seem to be predictive of depression, even though that's been something that we've thought of for years. Low serotonin leads to depression. And so if you're depressed, you need more serotonin. That's why you take drugs like SSRIs that deal with serotonin or try to maintain more serotonin in the synapses so that you um, have essentially more serotonin in your brain. So we see that this history of this chemical imbalance and that we can fix mental illnesses uh, using these drugs has been part of our... um, framework for decades now and it still exists that chemical imbalance and the title of the the book it actually it didn't hit me i had like this kind of like aha moment um late in reading the book and i think he kind of he might have intentionally um, done it that way but maybe you could have seen it earlier but the mind and the moon and so this comes from a speech by jfk who we might have remembered the part where he talks about how within a decade we're going to be on the moon. And so that was his kind of that moonshot promise or that that goal or that aspiration. But also in that speech, he talked about how we were going to reach the recesses of the brain as well and understand it. Um, So he said that uh, we would reach uh, the remote... uh, remote we would science would take us to the remote reaches of the brain and so and the, of the mind i should say and so that we would find these medications that would just essentially solve all of these mental problems and issues that we see and he's very hopeful and so what's interesting is that he, he uses this analogy that if we can think of how far the moon is but it appears that getting to the recesses of the mind it's even further so geographically, yes, the moon is much farther away, but we got there and we landed on the moon within a decade, but now uh, five, six decades from when that, or maybe even more, since that speech was given, we still haven't reached the, the recesses of the mind to understand how it works and then come up with solutions that will work, that will help treat people dealing with things like psychosis, schizophrenia, depression. Um, we haven't achieved that we are still working on it. We will continue to do so, but we can definitely see that we didn't get to what we thought we would, the predictions that were made and continue to be made. I've seen the same thing happen with advancements in neuroscience. Okay, we can scan brains in such better ways, uh, MRIs and then fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging. We can have these images to understand the brain and its function so much better. Uh, We should be able to in in a few years, in a decade, understand the brain completely, and we see that the brain just appears to be much more complex than we can really imagine, and understanding how it translates into the experience of a mind or the experiences that we have, even more challenging. And so he shares the history of drugs that became the first antipsychotics, and we can already see that there is this othering of people with certain types of mental illness or certain mental experiences that are different from what we consider quote-unquote typical or normal. Uh, Normal itself, an interesting word that has um, uh, its own history. But this idea that let's say someone who hears voices that is not among the consensus, that we would consider them having some kind of mental illness. And so uh, because that they're very much othered, and we see that often in these reports, even that that's something that struck me, it wasn't necessarily that they were now having a a good life. Often these early treatments just made them numb, or at least they were easier. So if they were agitated, or if they were causing what might feel like trouble to someone trying to watch them or maintain many people in a small facility, now they were easier. The same thing could be said of lobotomies. And so lobotomies were basically uh, disconnecting, killing some brain tissue, but it seemed to have some effect of calming people down, but also led to things like death and other horrible uh, side effects, if you want to call it that, or effects really of what they were doing. But it was praised because it's like, well, we have these people that are agitated and, and thinking differently and doing certain things that we don't like, and now they're being calm. And the individual, um, is it Dr. Moniz, M-O-I-N-Z, something like that, the individual who came up with the lobotomy, he won a Nobel Prize for the lobotomy. And so I think that point is very powerful when we consider the humility we we want to have in general. Uh, I've talked about this also in the book, How Minds Change brought this up very clearly of what we think we know when we think we know something um, or we're so clear even as a science, but as individuals, but whatever it may be, this epistemic uh, humility, this intellectual humility that that individual one A Nobel Prize for doing something that we would say is incredibly inhumane and horrible and not good at all and no one would even dare think of doing that kind of treatment now, but they won a a Nobel Prize. It was state of the art. It was praised and lauded for being such a great discovery and advancement. And so that's just something to be aware of. And I'm trying to be aware of that myself because I've realized I'm sure I've uh, promoted ideas similar to a chemical imbalance before, maybe even in the time that I've been doing this show, certainly before that, because that was the just accepted um, truth, The it was a reality. Um, or even now, last week I was thinking on the show, I was talking about, you know, it seems like connectivity seems to be even more important in the brain. How do different parts of the brain interact? Not just one part of the brain, not just one neurotransmitter, but connectivity. And there seems to be something there but I did think about that, and he actually mentioned in the book people talking about uh, connectivity and that's and I think someone was being not skeptical, being aware that we want to be you know, humble with that as well. And that made me think about that that I have to be aware of how I share those ideas, that it's our best understanding, but uh, our best understanding obviously will be limited and we want to be mindful of that in the sense that we don't think of it as some kind of absolute truth. So we see these advancements, these uh, we understand better. But we can understand that we can be very off, too. Sometimes it seems like it's obviously this, but it turns out not to be the case. And so uh, he, he does a great job of weaving these the history and these three individual stories. One of them, his brother, Bob. So he has obviously a very up-close uh, relationship with him and his own interactions with him. And he's vulnerable and sharing sometimes where he was mean to him growing up, actually very mean to him. He was the older brother himself, but then his brother was getting bigger and stronger and and different characteristics and talents he didn't have. And he was using whatever he could against them at times and and being mean to him. And also his relationships with his parents, their relationships with their brother. And it's heartbreaking at times seeing this, that the pain of this individual, but also worse than the pain, how he was treated and treated as, as an other at times for just being different from what is... Uh, the norm, whatever that may mean. And norm doesn't even mean healthy, but let alone th- what does it actually mean uh, for someone to be normal. Uh, but he he was very talented, or is, he shares his experience throughout his life as a musician and very talented artist in different ways, dancing, music, singing, and how later in his life, he was no longer on medications. He was diagnosed with a severe bipolar disorder, and he had uh, hallucinations at different times had some visions of things or he had to go save his grandfather's life and somehow he's connected to Joan of Arc uh, but he was a very talented musician and also is very good at connecting with people and he goes to as a chaplain in different roles helps individuals by using music to to connect them really to themselves but to each other and it's quite beautiful and we can see that he has these talents these abilities these gifts but he could be seen as just different and and not okay. And because of that, we have to fix him. We have to take away these parts of him. And I think these issues are complex because there is uh, mental illness that is harming the individuals and can harm others. So we have to be aware of that. So I'm not saying we should just forget about treating mental illness. Uh, that, that obviously wouldn't be something I would be um, in favor of, but to be aware of how much we can take away individuality of people by thinking they have to be a certain way Um, i also will talk about in the next segment some stories he shares or two parables he shares and related to that some thoughts on how we want to look at one another but look at people that whoever you think is different or some kind of other recognizing that often they aren't so different, or the way that they are is okay. We can accept them the way they are and recognize there's going to be gifts and even thinking differently or seeing things a different way. Uh, and those bo- both of those parables are, are in the book, and I thought they were very, very powerful. When I read them, I was really struck by them. But I did enjoy this this book. I didn't know what to expect when I um, came across it and then decided to order it. It just had some interesting prospects, the idea of his brother and following his journey through mental illness. Um, Also in the book, it talks about uh, David, who he um, details in the book, one of the three people he follows closely dealing with depression, severe depression, but then also dealing with coming off of antidepressants, which can have some really negative consequences. And many people do experience these side effects that can be very painful, very debilitating. And so he goes through that, but also tries things like psychedelics, To have that as a type of treatment, it doesn't seem to really work so great for him or have such a big impact, but we see that he's trying different types of treatment and also TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So treatment and how it's changed over the years and where it's going and where we still don't know. He also talks to neuroscientists and psychiatrists and experts in the field who at times share their thoughts and insights, but often also share this notion that is we don't know, which is something he shared at the end of the book, that We might have to be more uh, humble and share this with even our patients or share this when we're talking in the scientific uh, arena that we don't know. We're trying to understand, but really we don't know. People want definitive answers, and I get that. People sometimes will come to you and say, you know, this is happening with me or with my child or with this person, and you want to give them a clear answer because you see how worried they are, how concerned they are, how they just want some kind of a, Uh, idea that it's going to be okay or some solution and unfortunately often we don't have a clear easy solution and we have to be real about that we can't just sell false hope and say we know it's going to be okay we do have to recognize often we don't know as much as we understand better than before we're making advancements we often don't know and that can be a tough pill to swallow i guess pun intended there all right let's go into a commercial break we'll be right back back in the first segment i was talking about the book the mind and the moon by daniel bergner the mind of the moon my brother's story the science of our brains and the search for our psyches and as i mentioned before the break i did want to talk a bit about these two parables he shared that i think are very related but talk about two different themes that i think i took from the book one was that when we try to make everyone the same or there's some kind of normal that we think everyone has to be. um, We are going to be doing that in an oppressive way because we're not allowing people to be themselves and to express different ways of being, which we would have to then judge what's the right way to be. And we take away some of the brilliance and the gifts and talents that people have when we try to make them all be the same in some way. And then the second one relates more to The mindset of treatment that often we think when we're treating someone, especially with mental illness, and if it seems what we consider bizarre or different, that we treat them as this other, as this weird, this object to be acted on. You know, even they say, has this person been tried on this medication? He talks about that... uh, Um, Someone says that about one of the people he's talking about. It's very much like something's being done to them without their agency, without their decision, but also they're like this object. And so the second parable gets to this point of treatment, treating with, that you're with the patient or client rather than seeing them as some other and creating some hierarchy. So the first one um it relates to a man who comes across a peacock but hasn't seen one before so i'll read it to you now once long ago a traveler to a new land came across a peacock he had never seen this type of bird before and he looked to he took it to be a genetic freak he felt pity for the poor creature he believed it could not possibly survive in such a strange and deviant form so he began carefully charitably to correct nature's error he cut off the long colorful feathers he cut back the beak he dyed the bird a speckled muted black making it resemble a species that was familiar to him there now he said to the bird with pride in his work you look almost like a regular guinea fowl So we see that he saw this beautiful peacock, but because he had never seen a bird like that before, he assumed it had to be something sick and some genetic freak. And so he was going to fix nature's error. He was going to correct what was done wrong and he was going to make him uh, normal, we can think in a way. And so make him look like a bird he'd seen before, like a plain regular guinea fowl and so we can imagine this beautiful peacock and we're taking it away or taking its beauty away its uniqueness away because we haven't seen it before and we do see this often with what we call mental illness or what we think of as mental illness that we are at times putting people into these certain boxes as not okay as sick as unwell unfit in a variety of ways because they're different and it's important to come from that framework of difference rather than illness. The important thing for me, as is often the case when they describe mental illness, but I don't think it's overall the mindset of uh, the communities at times, especially historically, is that a mental illness has to be one where the individual feels distress. So if someone um, hears voices but is okay with it, would be likely okay. Now, if it's interfering with how they treat people in a negative way, if they're hurting others, we would say that could be of concern. But realizing that hearing voices itself doesn't have to be something so wrong. And I know that can sound surprising. And actually, I, I was uh, interested in the book. You talked about this, I think it was the Hearing Voices Network. Um, so there's groups, and there's other groups, I'm sure, as well, who are individuals who might hear voices, but have learned how to deal with or understand them in some way or live with them in a way that they can actually be okay. And and this to me is important because even as uh, myself trying to talk in this way about being more open, I can recognize that I still have this bias because of what I've learned and seen that hearing voices, so psychosis, when you have hallucinations or delusions, that's just medicine, like directly, that's it. There's not even often a thought about it. The treatment first is medication, maybe therapy also, but really therapy alone won't be enough. There's no way it could be enough. That's really how we're taught or what you always hear. But I'm aware that there are alternatives to that, that it doesn't have to be that way. Again, there can be extremes or situations where the individual's hurting in their own experience. We want to help them, um, but this judgment that we can have that people have to be a certain way or that certain types of experiences have to be wrong, it's something to be mindful of that it's it's more complicated than that. Uh, and related to this, um, there are other, well, it also exists in the United States, but I see it more in Europe and I've been reading more about it, but other, I'm sure other countries as well. I think I was reading a study, it was in South America, I forget what country it was, it might have been Chile, but anyway, where the community-based types of treatments or Treatment where an individual is just allowed to be a member of the community. And unfortunately, what we saw in the United States uh, is these institutionalization of individuals who were different in these ways and how that hurt them. And so when you put someone in, you know, chains and you do certain things to them, of course, you're going to hurt them even more. And then you can judge them. Look how crazy they are. Look how, uh, you know, different from normal they are. But you're treating them in a very unnormal way and hurting them in a very unhealthy way of course they're going to uh, respond in that way but we can see there are uh, areas of the world where they approach this very differently that people might be different but they recognize that difference as we uh, we don't have to pretend like we don't see it but it doesn't mean that they can't be a part of society i forgot the country or the city in belgium um, that has this historically where every household essentially has someone with some type of a severe mental illness or who's been diagnosed or has something like, uh, 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 I think a psychotic disorder or something like that, not all necessarily to, to some degree, but anyway, that they just live amongst each other, they live together and it's not some feeling that we have to be afraid of them. That's another big myth that gets perpetuated that those who are mentally ill or let's say hear voices are violent and we have to be afraid of them when really they're more likely to be the victims of violence and to actually be dangerous. But unfortunately, it's a very big way of othering a group is that they're scary and dangerous, violent, unpredictable, because it dehumanizes them and also makes you um, not want to help them or afraid to help them. Well, I want to help that individual, but they're probably violent. And so, yes, can it happen? Of course. But it's not something common or something we should expect happening all the time. Um, but this is unfortunately one of the myths that is out there, is that we have to be very afraid of people who, let's say, hear voices or who have certain experiences. Not only that, I often was taught that the voices are just meaningless. as kind of the brain misfiring or just something wrong. It's part of the sickness. So there's nothing there. But in the book, he talks about how some people and practitioners recognize that there could be some information the voices are giving us. Even today, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, we have feelings that come up and... I have a feeling of anxiety or an anger about something. And it could be, let's say, that the feeling for them, they hear a voice, let's say for some individual, that is part of that feeling or it's expressing something, but it's something that's coming from their unconscious that actually might have value. So it's not just noise or something we have to get rid of or ignore. There could be something actually there, uh, something to consider. But now I'll read the other parable that this is more regarding how you treat someone who's let's say going through something that is making them act in a certain way that we might not consider typical but let me read this to you about a prince once there was a prince who went crazy he believed he was a turkey he took off his clothes and crawled under a table and refused to eat anything except to peck at bones and bits of bread which were left for him on the floor the king and queen were distraught They called for the royal physicians, but one after another failed to carry out a cure. The prince remained a turkey, naked and pecking. Then a sage arrived to offer his services. He undressed and sat beneath the table, nibbling. "'Who are you?' asked the prince. "'What are you doing here?' "'And you?' asked the sage. "'What are you doing here?' "'I am a turkey,' said the prince.' i too am a turkey said the sage they spent time together like this getting to know each other until one day the sage asked the king's servants to bring him some shirts is there any reason why a turkey cannot wear a shirt the sage asked the prince each put on a garment the sage signaled the servants for pairs of pants and asked is there any reason a turkey cannot wear pants the same transpired with socks and shoes and soon they were both completely dressed. Next, the sage requested regular food, and when this was brought, asked of the prince, Is there any reason why a turkey cannot eat good food? I think one can eat when one wishes and still be a turkey. They feasted together, and some time later, the sage inquired, Is there any reason why a turkey must sit under the table? Surely a turkey may sit at the table with his place nicely set, and in this way, the prince was finally cured. And so it's a, a beautiful story, and it might seem kind of like a, a silly story, but I actually do think there's a lot of value in that story, and even in reality, of of connecting in that way. I remember um, when I was interning at the psychiatric hospital during graduate school, uh, hearing a, a one of the... I don't know if he was a supervisor. I forgot who he was, a psychologist or probably psychologist. But anyway, he was saying that he would sometimes talk to clients the way they were talking, even if if it was bizarre, back to them. Not in a way that was mocking them, of course, but in a way of showing that I'm I'm kind of with you. I'm trying to connect with you or be one with you. So this is that idea I was saying before that he brought up in the book of being with. So you don't see this person saying, oh, this person is under the table. What's wrong with them? We have to tell them they're crazy and they're a prince and they have to come from under there and and come sit with us. But this sage, who was this healer, he went and joined the prince under the table and said, I'm with you. I want to be with you. We're together. We're one. And slowly helped him to come out of that rather than dragging out of dragging him out of that pulling him out of that or telling him he's crazy or wrong and in that way trying to get him out of that I actually remember when I was at the psychiatric hospital one of my supervisors Dr. and he he actually I think said it very well because it, it was challenging if you're talking to someone and let's say they see something that you don't see or they hear something you don't hear and so of course our knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, there's nothing there, or what are you talking about? I don't, there's nothing to hear, or there's nothing you're seeing, it's not actually there. But the way he uh, taught us that is a way of approaching this, he said that rather than saying it in that way, it doesn't exist, it's not there, what are you talking about? That you can say, I don't hear it, but I believe that you do. So you aren't lying to them and saying, oh yeah, I hear the voice too that you're talking about, or I see that thing, because that wouldn't be honest but you're also empathizing and not invalidating their experience. I don't see that thing, but I believe that you do. And you might even say that's so scary if you see something, I can empathize with that. I remember a professor at UCLA teaching a class in abnormal psychology and saying that she was visiting uh, a child psychiatric ward. I don't know if she was working there or or training there, whatever it might have been, but she said that she walked in a room and this child tackled her. Or, or jumped on her and pushed her away. And then, you know, of course she was startled and, you know, I'm sure there was some chaos. I don't remember the details of that part of the story. But when she finally got to talk to the child, the child said, when you walked in, there was this monster by the door and I was knocking you out of the way of the monster. So we can see that at first it looked like the child was attacking her. And if we go back to our myths of, of you know, someone who is uh, seeing things, hearing things, is very dangerous. It's like, oh, this wild child attacks the doctor. What actually turned out the child was trying to protect the doctor because there was a monster there that they were seeing and wanted to get them out of the way. So if we try to understand someone's experience, we can see that there's always, almost always going to be much more than what meets our eye of what's happening there. What are they going through? And when you want to help someone in whatever way it might be, the best we can do is to meet them where they are. The analogy I sometimes use is if, if you're car is, let's say, in LA and you need it to be in San Diego, you can't just say it needs to be in San Diego. You have to go meet it in LA and and find a way to get it to San Diego. You can't just wish it to be where you want it to be or try to drag it there or magically take it there. When someone is not doing well or just to understand someone's experience, we always have to try to meet them where they are. And so I really like those uh, two parables from uh, this book that he shared, especially that one about the sage and the prince That if you really want to help someone, the best you can do is to first meet them where they are, to understand them, show that you respect what they're going through, and then to help find a way towards what they think is healing. That's another part of it. If you just think, I have to make you the normal I think, that often will be taking away their humanity and their uh, degree to have autonomy and choice in their life. But you can actually go to them and say, how do we find where you want to be, and then help them get there, if that's what they want. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So today I've been talking about mental illness, the ways we view mental illness, the history of uh, mental illness and the medications that have come across. That In this book, The Mind and the Moon by da- Daniel Bergner, he outlines how harmful at times the the side effects of these medications were those often overlooked and of course not surprisingly a big culprit and and a lot of that was the pharmaceutical companies and the power of money that billions were being made with these new medications uh, but the victims were really those who were getting the medications and at times even billion dollar fines were paid by these companies but We see this happen and it's happened again with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma with the opioids that they make tens of billions and then they pay several billion dollars in fines. And so when we, we see the rulings, it sounds like a big deal when you find out a company has to pay several billion dollars in fines. You're like, wow, they got punished. But when you realize if you make 12 billion and then get fined 5 billion, that's most people will take that. That offer or that that gamble and that's what they're doing and so it's unfortunate we see how much the power of the the pharmaceutical companies and money impacts what's going on here impacts even the doctors impacts even lawmakers because it becomes part of the rhetoric we see how much he talks about in the book there was propaganda in different ways that the um, the companies did to show that the side effects are minimal they do their own studies and to share this with the doctors, same thing we see with the opioid crisis, where it was presented that oxycodone would be um, helping with pain and was not addictive, that I think 1% of people would get addicted or not, even that, which was totally bogus. But they were able to promote that to the point where doctors were convinced and doctors were often in good faith prescribing this medication because they thought it was going to help their patients. But unfortunately, for many of them, it led to addiction and even death. And so that's a heartbreaking part that, again, I say it's not surprising because we see it so often plays a part, but definitely a big part of that, that healing does not seem to be the driving force. Unfortunately, at the end, the money can become a big part of what happens there. But, you know, medications, I I want to be clear, it's not some black and white thing. Many people have been helped, their lives have been saved by psychiatric medications. So it's not to say... That they're all bad and no one should take them they can be helpful for many people it's recognizing that they are limited at the same time and we want to think it's an easy fix and often can have that um, intention or might become our understanding i mentioned this last week you hear the term an antidepressant it seems pretty clear if you're depressed you take an antidepressant you're no longer depressed you having anxiety you take an anti-anxiety medication now the medications are called that but it doesn't mean they just have that action easily and he talks about that the the drugs for depression that we often don't know exactly what's going on is it too much serotonin and then the drugs for psychosis for schizophrenia okay it seems like it's too much dopamine in certain areas or maybe not enough dopamine in certain areas so dopamine is that neurotransmitter and what i'm just learning And seeing again and again, when I look at different treatments, different medications, different illnesses, is that they are so much more complex than we would hope they would be. We wish it was just too little serotonin, but that doesn't seem to be the case. If it was, it would be a very easy fix and everyone would be getting better. But clearly it's not that. Even the fact that it takes time for antidepressants to kick in shows it is probably not just that because the effect on serotonin is pretty Immediate, So uh, it seems pretty clear that it's more than that. And so we have to accept this limitation of where we are at. And it is a bit surprising, and that's something that comes up in the book as well, as he talks to different professionals that they do at times recognize there has been progress made, but there hasn't been the type of progress we would hope for, or we would expect based on decades of research and how science we would, would, would think it could advance, we haven't gotten that much better at coming up with medications that treat certain mental illnesses it doesn't seem to be the case it could be that our paradigm is completely off that the way we are viewing the the brain and, and how it leads to experience is is off or how it's what we're imagining is causing things what we think causes things it's not it at all it could be that uh, i heard some one of the scientists he interviewed was saying rather than looking at what's happening between the neurons like in the synapses let's look at what's happening in the neurons in the cell body he thought that was more impactful and there was some research there but they still weren't able to come up with with something that was going to fix it or be as much of a help as they thought so it is unfortunate i think we all wish that it was that way and i think people have that misconception so I'm not here to write off psychiatry as a field does a lot of good I think people think that the medications are so simple that you just take them and they make you feel better or they alleviate whatever it is another important aspect of this as I was talking about in the last segment is recognizing that often getting rid of symptoms or illnesses or experiences might not even be the best answer so people are in a lot of pain we want to help them so obviously i'm not uh, against that at all or suggesting that's not important but sometimes when people think we'll have anxiety have to get rid of it anxiety itself is part of the human experience that we need to have so it's not something you want to make disappear or if you're going through a depression yes it can get so dark and bad that help will be uh, helpful obviously Uh, help will be needed uh, if you're let's say in a really dark place that can be the case but it doesn't mean that there's nothing to value in that depression and that's another issue i have at times with how mental illnesses and experiences are viewed and even in research i'll see people say okay um, we're looking at people after they go through a breakup of a relationship and these people were less sad than these people so they're doing better let's look at what they did and that's the solution or that's a a solution or helpful and it's possible, obviously, overall, we'd rather feel good than bad. But what if there's something those people are missing in their understanding of what they went through when they're feeling better? That the people who are still sad or more sad might be allowing themselves to experience. So I I see two people after a breakup and one of them is, you know, quote unquote, living their best life and happy and partying and having fun. And the other one might be sad and in their room and thinking about what happened. And our first reaction is like, well, the one out partying and having fun, they won the breakup, they're doing better. But really, shouldn't we also be looking at what they're going through and is it healthy to just feel better? It's kind of like if we looked at two people who had a disappointment and one got high on drugs and the other one just thought about things and the, well, the one who's high is feeling better, they they won. Well, not necessarily, obviously, they could have consequences based on that and they might be avoiding something so i see this in times in research on different psychological factors sometimes i'm not just saying medication research on different experiences i think what's hard about uh, research in psychology or understanding psychology psychiatry is that you have to make or you it's hard not to make some assumptions or judgments about what is a good life or what is mental health even mean? And I think that's a complex issue in and of itself. What does it mean to be mentally healthy? What does it mean to have good mental health? And I think that is much less straightforward than we would think. And I think much less straightforward than even physical health. There are the markers, I think, are more clear in physical health. Maybe because I'm in mental health, I see it as more complex. But I really think it's the case that what is a mentally healthy person and so as a therapist we're asked very much to be judgment free to be aware of our cultural you know values and how someone else's culture might be different to be very aware of this so essentially to have no judgments and and to be kind of like this blank slate but what i i've realized is that that's really impossible i think it's aspirational and you want to be very mindful of that but i even realized i was i was talking to a colleague about this that when you're listening to someone share their experience let's say they're telling you about the last week you'll follow up on certain things now sometimes you might want to just get more information on something or you think something was significant let's explore that but sometimes you ask questions because you think something they're doing is unhealthy and you might not even say right off the bat that it's unhealthy but try to understand so let's say you know someone a client tells me about their we go, oh, you know um this happened, and then I called my sister in the morning, and then I was this, and I called my sister at noon, and then, and let's say they talk about calling their sister eight times in a day. Now, and then they say their whole story. Now, you might be like, oh, uh, so you said you called your sister before this, after this, like, that was eight times. Is that like typical? So, just in asking that question, obviously, I'm saying that kind of seems like a lot of times to call your sister if it's something you do every day is that typical right so i'm having a judgment about without even maybe thinking of it myself just a reaction type of a judgment that that's a lot of times to call one person in a day you know now let's say if something was happening maybe it said oh you know actually you no know, that she was going in for some medical tests so she was nervous so we talked then i'm like oh but see clearly now i'm saying it's okay or justifiable or acceptable because it was a unique circumstance but if every day you call her that much that would be not healthy or not okay. So we can see that we can try to have no judgments, but we will. And I also think we in a way should, which I think this is where it gets very blurry because yes, I'm gonna have judgments that are impacted by me and they're my personal preference, but how can I have no understanding of what a good life or a healthy life is? I have to have some understanding that I'm operating from. And what I think is important is that as individuals, but especially if you're a psychologist, therapist, someone working in that domain, to recognize and know. So we can't pretend like we are judgment-free and I, you know, everything is equal and no experience is better than any other experience. Every kind of relationship is as good as every other kind of relationship. Every, um, you know, the gender roles, I have no judgment on that. All of those things as human beings, we're going to have some kind of reaction and judgments to them. But what can be very important is to at least be aware of them. And so this is why in research, it's always important to understand what are my biases? What are the assumptions, the preferences, the places that I come from and the experiences that I have that might impact how I view this topic, this issue, whatever it is that I'm studying. But we can't assume, no, there's no value system here. That's something that science tried to do or thought they were doing. They said, well, it's a scientific method. It's unbiased. And then now history has shown time and time again that it has been and continues to be very biased. It's just that we don't see them. That's how biases work. When you have them, you just think you're seeing the truth, not recognizing that it is a bias or being impacted or influenced by a bias. And really we can recognize that that's how we're constantly viewing the world. We don't have this purely objective view of anything. Even our sensory experience can be considered some type of a controlled hallucination, not something that we just see everything, feel everything from the outside. This is why actually when we talk about hallucinations, we even could be mindful of the language because we say, oh, they hear voices that aren't there, which means that everything else I hear and see is exactly as the world is, which isn't the case. So we can see how difficult these issues are, but I do hope this mindset that we can be so quick to judge others judge their experiences, judge who they are, if it's different from what is considered the norm, whatever that can mean, or what we think of as good or healthy, but recognize that we have a lot of these judgments that don't necessarily mean they're true or right, but they're coming from somewhere. We want to evaluate them and look at them more closely. So I enjoyed this book. I didn't expect it to be exactly the way it was. It was actually better than I expected, I would say, because it... um, Talked about things in a way I did not anticipate. So that was The Mind and the Moon by Daniel Bergner. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night.